With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Welcome back to the Love Tennis Podcast, or should I say Gurda Morgan, which that only applies if you're actually listening to this in the morning, but unfortunately I don't know any other Dutch greetings, uh, so I hope you're listening in the morning. I am uh, zooming in from Antwerp, where I am out covering the European Open. Uh, I am James Gray, in case you haven't listened before, uh, of iNews and the iNewspaper. I've got Calvin Beton, our resident tennis coach, and George Belshaw, the tennis writer and... um, Really sort of ugly eater as far as this Zoom call. It's quite weird. What are you eating, George? What's, what's for dinner? A butternut squash and chickpea curry. Okay. Um, I'm not it's completely very, against it. It's did very you, hot. Did you make it? I did not. Okay. I did not. Um, yeah, it, it took slightly longer than it was supposed to. But I won't <laughs> complain because I didn't make it. Right. Okay. Um, I never sounds, complain Sounds anyway. a bit like you're complaining, George, if I'm honest. I don't know. I'm always very positive. But um, I'll give you my good news quickly as well. Okay. Uh, that's not about my food. So you may have, may have seen this week. I've, uh, I've returned to running this week. I did a three-minute run on Friday. I've done a seven-minute run today. How exciting. How is your I'm knee on the feeling? Old couch. Yeah, good. So I've been told I have to do kind of the couch to 5K thing. So kind of walking slash running for 20 minutes. That's like a, a good build-up apparently. So I see. Okay. Yes. Calvin, exciting. have you got any positive injury news for us this this week? Um, only that I've not been injured. <laughs> I mean, um, that that it probably is yeah. newsworthy, to be fair. No calf yeah. blood, if I have a side. Um, no. I'm going to start the podcast, uh, before we start talking about tennis, by talking about reviews. Uh, we haven't had quite as many the last couple of weeks. Uh, we've had a few, and I always do try and read them out. Um, I've had lots of people getting in touch on various social media, and I will get to that but if you're listening on say apple podcasts or spotify you can leave us a rating and i think a review now on spotify as well and we'd really appreciate if you did it Uh, when you do them it helps us reach more people 
which means we can record more podcasts, which means you can get more content if you like it. Um, and my promise to you is that if you leave a five-star review, I will read it out on air, even if you're going to embarrass me by saying how wonderful I am at the job, um, because I know that's what people want to say. Uh, now, people who got in touch with me this week, Chris Neen sent me a message on Instagram. He said, uh, enjoy your podcast, especially enjoy having Calvin's insights as someone who's a coach on as who's on tour as a coach. Uh, and I've also had an email from Nancy Self. Um, she emailed to say, love your podcast, uh, been listening for about a year, I live in Napa, California, and was so excited to see that Cash and Patton are in the finals at the Fairfield Challenger Tournament, please let Calvin know that I'm going to the match tomorrow after my USTA match and cheer for them. Well, Nancy, you clearly had a good impact because Patton and Cash picked up yet another title that takes them, I think, to the verge of the top 100 now, Calvin, isn't it? I think Henry in the, on the live rankings... Is just inside, but he's one hundred and two um, on the actual rankings. Is that is that as big a deal? I mean, it's obviously a different deal in singles and doubles, but is that a milestone that you will kind of privately go, "Well done, lads! That's a big deal." Yeah, it's a nice. I don't think you say it's a big deal. It's just something that's nice to achieve, isn't it? Mm. You can say that you're, you know, inside one hundred. Um, um, is this a bit of a like a, a point at which they start? to get into a few more big draws. I know we were talking like off air a few weeks ago about scheduling their way around Europe, but are they now getting to the point where they can get into bigger ATP tournaments? No, that doesn't really make a difference. Um, it's more the slams. If they wanted to play together, the slams, they'd have to both get to around about 70. Mm. Um, if they want to play the Master Series, they're probably going to have to get into the top 50, um, maybe 45. And if they want to play the two fifth, weirdly, the, the, goes, the, the bigger the tournament, the, the easier it is to get into on the main tour. So the two fifties and the five hundreds, where they only have 16 pair draws, you probably got to get somewhere around 30, 35 if you want to play together. I have a, a couple of questions for you, Calvin, if you don't mind. I don't mind me. at all, George. One of them is serious. One of them is not so serious. Um, first one, have you, have you ever counted how many tour level or not? Tour tour level, but challenger level titles you as a coach have won, and what what's the number? Have you got like oh. a, a list you've weighed up? And if not, can we get that list at some point? Because I'd love to. This must be your most bountiful season potentially. Uh, I've never counted. I know how many most of my players have won, but I've never counted how many I've won. I mean, I haven't won any. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, yeah, I I've not actually. It's not something I. I tend to do, but I know, and I don't count, you know, I don't count how many play, how many they've won. I just, you just hear it around. I know that the commentator said, uh, well, on the final, they had a commentator on the semis and the final. I think he said that Henry and Julian have won, I think this is their sixth, maybe, of the year. Um, and I think that their second, there's a, there's another pair who've won seven, I think. So, um, might be their, or it might be their fifth and the, the other need to win six, but, um, and I know that I think Luke had Luke's not won a challenger yet, but I think he's won something like twenty-seven futures tournaments. It's prolific. Yeah, um, George, you had a second question. Did I, I? I do have a second question. It's sort of a follow-on on the first, but uh, we may need to start a petition if uh, this doesn't change. But I, where? Why are you not listed under Henry's uh, ATP page as his coach? Am I not? How do we go about solving that? No, I don't know actually, because um, I'm on his player zone. So when the players enter, coach players... it says on this. 
No, like we need to we need to write in something and, uh, I don't know. You know <laughs> <rectify>. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's been yeah. out in the states for a while. He might have got a new coach. Uh, yeah, I've actually um, just had a text from Henry saying, "Could you let <laughs> Calvin know?" Um, no, anyway. they. Um, I know I'm on his player zone because the the player zone is the ATP sort of app that the players enter tournaments using, uh, and you register your coaches on that. And I know I'm on that because I get the emails when he's entered the tournament, that kind of thing. But I think it's just on the. Um, a lot of the players they don't like same on the itf they just don't update those profiles um for one reason or another fair enough um we got distracted uh from everything else we were trying to do and thank you very much nancy for your email and the pictures that you sent over from uh cash and patterns victory over there in fairfield uh very kind of you it was very nice to get in the uh love tennis inbox this week if you want to get in touch like nancy did uh, you can drop us an email, lovetennispod at gmail.com. Uh, we've got loads to talk about this week, so I'll make no more ado. Uh, we're going to talk about Andy Murray and everything that's going on here in Antwerp this week. We'll talk about Iga Shontek and the controversy around her hindrances or not hindrances. You decide. Uh, we'll talk a bit about Alexandra Gasanova and some disturbing stuff she's been putting on social media. Andrea Seppi, Felix Auger-Aliassime, Andre Rublev, Blinkova, Goff, Pagula, all on my list this week week but I'm going to start with Andy Murray because he was due to play here in Antwerp uh, at the European Open which is the only title he has won since hip surgery uh, he won it back in 2019 a pretty pretty emotional victory um, and he was signed up to come back here this year which I think everyone expected that he would partly because he was entered but also because of the kind of emotional pull um, it kind of started floating around over the weekend that he might pull out and then um, I had it confirmed on Sunday that he had pulled out after the draw which is actually pretty unusual for Murray like we know that he pulls out of tournaments sometimes that one sometimes has to but generally he does at least get out before the draw so I think that maybe suggests that it was quite a tricky decision um, the reality of the situation for, for people who have been asking because there's not a lot of info out there is that he played three matches in, in Spain in Gijon against Fakina, Cachin and Corda. It was about seven hours on court. He's playing next week in Basel and Paris the week after that. And I think the reality of playing four weeks in a row is that he simply wouldn't be able to do it um, with his current physicality. And this is a 250 and the other one is a 500 and a 1,000. And Murray desperately needs points, doesn't he, George? Because he wants to be seeded at Grand Slam. So he kind of has to be pretty pragmatic about these decisions i suppose yeah i mean he does i think i mean it's always hard to say exactly kind of how knackered he was or not uh, if i were him i probably would have played this one if i was physically capable you never quite know what draw you're going to get in those other two when you're kind of not not necessarily seeded and i quite fancied his draw this time kind of Yao Mei Munar first round Luca Van Ash or Nishioka second round and then you're kind of in hatching of quarter territory for quarterfinals which okay not easy matches necessarily but given tournaments of this level don't always see the seeds necessarily come through and he's just gone three sets with quarter and quite a decent match last week so I personally would have liked to see him kind of go if it yeah, but look, he knows his body better than I do. But if, if it was a purely points-based decision, it's conceivable he could lose first round in the 500 of the Masters. So if if that's really his aim, I, I, I personally would have would have played it. But yeah, 
um hopefully it is okay it's nothing too serious you know we've had quite a few years of murray trauma if you like in thinking things are going really well and then there being a another setback or so so i hope it's nothing they're kind of playing down it just is a matter of fatigue um but yeah he's got to manage his body the official atp line was they called it a non-medical issue which i think is what they say when it's effectively fatigue but I mean, I spoke to someone quite quite close to Andy who who said that it was a case of pacing himself and still planning to go to go Basel and Paris. But as you say, George, um, players never like to give too much away when it comes to injury. Uh, but Calvin, I suppose what what this does highlight once again, and I suspect that I'm just queuing up the uh, the same 33 and a third record from Calvin Beton about Andy Murray's game style. But you can't get involved in a two hour fifty match with Pedro Cachin in the second round of a, a 250, can you? Yeah, that's what's. Uh, you're right. It's that, that's what's going to cost him. If he, get, you know, if he hadn't have done that, then you know he might have played this week. Mm. And I agree with George. I think he had a really tasty draw. Mm. Um, I'm surprised that he pulled out with that, especially with you know the points would have been quite nice. He's, I think he definitely won his first two rounds mm. at least. Uh, and tasty is probably the operative word, I should say. Um, I spent the morning in a chocolate factory with David Goffin, Karen Hatchinoff, and Hubert Hercatch, which I think is. I mean, it's not quite my idea of heaven, but it's not far off. Have you have you become the Willy Wonka of Antwerp this weekend, James? <laughs> I think that would be Willem Wonka, um, but no, I mean not quite. Uh, I, I actually haven't eaten that much chocolate. They they gave us a little jar um, which had some goodies in it, which I've just devoured as my post dinner treat. And there is a box of uh, sealed goodies that I'm going to tell my missus I paid a lot of money for. And um, give them to her as a present when I get, when I get back on Wednesday. Um, yeah, it was. I mean, you sort of forget. I think if you just do the slams, or if you're not really involved in tennis in a very intimate way, you forget that these tournaments, the 250s and the 500s, like it's the big event for the town. You know, this is the only ATP Tour event in Belgium, actually. So this is the biggest tennis tournament in Belgium. And all right, it's not a big country, but. It's a big deal. So, you know, the tourist board, they, they want to kind of do their work and, and be like, well, you know, famous for chocolate. Let's get Hubert Hercatch juggling some chocolate tennis balls, which they did. And then they broke in midair. And they, <laughs> they had this big pile of them, you know, like a pile of tennis balls. And Hubie, like, picks up three of them and starts juggling. It's very impressive. And then one of them sort of breaks in half because that's how you make a circle of chocolate. And he drops two of them I think and then just picks them up and puts them back on the pile and like mate who like they've been on the floor like you, you can't put them back there um, I'm second rule Joe <laughs> I actually I actually apply the 10 second rule to chocolate it's a special yeah. case um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah it was nice to kind of you know hang out with them and, and chat to them a bit and had a, a bit of a laugh with Hubie about you know Federer is retired now and he is officially the man that retired Federer at Wimbledon. I said, You're, you'll go down in history now. And he gave me a look and went, I really hope people remember you from all the bagling Federer at Wimbledon. They, they may well not in this country. <laughs> it's quite a big deal. Um, what what else are you kind of up to in Antwerp this week? It's not a tournament I've done before. But I'm interested no, to see how you get on. I, I, I'm certainly in the minority. I mean... Um, I think I am the only British journalist out here. Um, it's been a very quiet press room. It, it's one of those things where I wanted to make an effort to go to a couple of smaller tournaments this year. So, like, I went up to Nottingham during the grass court season. And, and Antwerp's very easy to get to from London. 
like the Eurostar, you can get the Eurostar to Brussels and then the train up from Antwerp. Um, so it's it's pretty convenient. And yeah, I mean, Jack Draper's here um, and I had a good chat with him on Sunday, which people were able to read the newspaper in the next couple of weeks because we weren't really talking about this tournament necessarily, just bigger stuff. And and to be fair, he then absolutely marmalised Jensen Brooksby today. I mean, it was three games he lost and Brooksby, <laughs> almost every sit down, Brooksby just had his head in his hands. He was just like, this is, I don't know what to do with this. And to be fair, like Draper was just hitting it absolutely massive. Um, but yeah, I had a good chat and, it, you know, I'm interested in him and I, I think he's going to be really big. Am I getting any credit for that prediction on that one, James? Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's, actually, I should I should point out and there are receipts for this that Calvin did say in the WhatsApp. I, I, the specific words you used, I can't quite remember, but Draper could, I mean, maybe roll, roll, yeah. I think was the word, Brooksby. Um, and yeah, he definitely rolled him. I was, I was just going to say, James, uh, probably quite a boring point, but um, seeing as we do sometimes get comments saying they quite enjoy hearing the uh, the kind of media perspective as well as the... Uh, it, it is something you do quite often, isn't it? You kind of nip to these smaller tournaments and bank a big interview and then kind of put it out, kind of building towards something, isn't it? Just in case people aren't aware of that kind of technicality behind it. Yeah, exactly. You know, it, it can be difficult to pin players down. And the one place you know they're going to be is a practice session the day before a tournament. So it's a lot easier to just say to... I mean, also because then you actually technically don't really have to go through the agent, you know. And I'm not saying that agents are always difficult. And, you know, Jack's agent has actually been very good with us. But um, it just means you can just say to the tournament, look, can you just grab him for 15 minutes? And they're usually doing a bit of, like, video content anyway. And you just jump in after them. So... Yeah, Jack was doing some filming for the ATP about Australia, you know, banking. They were banking that, and then I said, "Oh, come over here and we'll have a bit of a chat." And and also these smaller tournaments. And again, people won't know this because they're not behind the scenes of these tournaments. But at Grand Slams, for example, all the players are quite tense, frankly. Like in media, there's lots of media there. They don't know all of them, and it is a tense environment. Whereas you go to these smaller tournaments, it's a bit more relaxed, like, you know, the the uh, the sort of entertainment bit, you know, where they've got, like, they've got some video games and they've got a few little games for kids to play. It's, like, underneath the motorway bridge, just outside the Lotto Arena. Like, it's not glamorous. And, you know, the player's entrance is right next to. Um, someone's got a question for me. I don't mind who goes first. I was just going to ask, James, is, is the... I don't know if it's still the case in Antwerp, but is the trophy still that diamond-encrusted tennis racket? I haven't seen the trophy actually, so it may well be. Um, I'm not sure. I, this isn't, I will... isn't it the home of where they cut the diamonds? It very much is a very diamond-centric city. Yes, so uh, it, I assume it's it, it. Look, Calvin, if it's not made of diamonds anymore, I suspect it's made of chocolate, based on my experiences this right. week, which wouldn't be so good. <laughs> um, yeah, I was just going to say. I mean, kind of on the smaller tournament thing. I mean. You... From from a media perspective, it really, really does vary so dramatically. Like, from, like from a slam where everything's so controlled and they have all their main areas and they're kind of locked away, and you have to go through very formal processes to be like, oh, uh, can I put in a request for this person? Blah blah blah. And it, you know, it's a lot longer and more kind of. So the, probably the, the greatest difference I had was uh, I went to do the Moritoglu Challenger like a couple of years ago, three years ago maybe, and that was just like so open eye-opening in terms of like a tournament you basically i asked someone like after the match like oh who where, where can i kind of put in a request to speak to someone who's gone 
you've just got to chase them around the grounds. <laughs> there's no one here to do that. You've just got to like run around. So I'd, I'd gone to like bank a, a, an interview with Murray Toglu at the time. So that was like kind of my main purpose with the rest of it was just walking around. And, and the, the other side of it as well is like, because they're all living at this kind of academy for the week, there's only one bar and restaurant within the place. So everyone's kind of going to the same place, which you, you would just never get at the slams. You have all these different cordoned off areas. People would go out and stuff. So it, I always recommend to people, if, if you're into tennis, going to these kind of smaller tournaments is a great way to kind of get really up close with people um, and, and see a bit more of the kind of insight rather than the slam. It's also the state, and we can't talk about it on air, but um, it, the, redact, the great redacted night out of George Belshaw's tennis career is, <laughs> is it was also it took place at the Muratogli Challenger. And literally, anything else I say could get me into the high court. So um, maybe when we do a podcast live and people pay pay to come and see us, George will tell the story of his Muratogli Challenger night out. I definitely will be redacting all the names. <laughs> I reckon people could probably guess. Anyway, let's move on before I really do get us in trouble. Um, yeah, it, it is a good draw this week as well. As I mentioned, Hubert Hercatch is here. Felix Auger-Elia Seam uh, is going to be arriving. I think he's pretty much landing as we speak, fresh from a title uh, in Spain. So we'll see how that evolves. Um, Vavrinka versus Gasquet is taking place as we speak. I've stepped off court uh, in order to do this podcast. Uh, the, one of the great single-handed matchups probably the last time they'll ever play in a professional match as well so a little bit of history being created here in antwerp it's one of them um, retiring well i'm just sort of assuming like they're like stands 37 and gasquet i mean about the same age one he actually might so richard gasquet might be slightly younger than i think he is but if you ever go to a tournament and see richard gasquet walking around that man has a lot of years of tennis in his legs like he walk, he walks, he walks like that stag do I went on once and very slightly shat myself. Like that, that is genuine. Like it genuinely just like <laughs> wanders around. Like it's another I'm not one. sure I know that story. I'm not sure I want to. It's, an, it's another one for the podcast live, George. I'm afraid the rest, the rest of it is redacted <laughs> again. It's just, there were too many high value individuals on that trip for me to divulge further information. Um, but he, I mean, Gasquet is 36, incidentally. I just say uh, one other thing, seeing as I need to crowbar him into every week's episode, but Dominic Team's in Antwerp, and uh, he's actually had a very good week, which I left off the order of play, shockingly, but I thought I'd just drop it in as a surprise. But Well, we yeah. should talk about um, the tournament, and I've avoided saying the name of the tournament thus far, because I think you have to say it like you're a donkey. Yeehaw! Hee-haw. I think it's hee-haw. They have a football team called Sporting Hee-haw. Um, but yes, he did a very good week, got to the semi-finals, he beat Souza and Cherondolo, which is a very good victory. Um, I have a, a guy from Glasgow who quite regularly DMs me about Dominic Team, um, who I know very excited that, uh, T- well, in fact, I know, he, I already know, because he, he DM'd me about a second after he beat Souza 6-2, 6-love, saying bagels for Team. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was a good tournament with a strong field. Uh, won by Felix Auger-Aliassime, which is um, also not true, is it? He didn't win in Hee-Haw. Where did he win, George? That was Rublev who won. This, Rublev uh, won this in week. Hee-Haw. Um, in, a, in a strong field. But the reason I said Felix Auger-Aliassime was because A, because he also won a title, and B, because I wanted to ask you, is Felix Auger-Aliassime evolving into the next stage of his career, which is to be Andre Rublev? 
<laughs> I mean, what I'll uh, say on that, I'll, I'll just quickly come in that, that as long as I've been involved in tennis, these 250, the kind of autumn Europe 250s, if you're ranked somewhere between seven and 10 in the world, you're guaranteed to win two a year. <laughs> just, they're always won by those guys. Is that because, because I, I was going to ask you about this, like Felix has got 11 finals. I think six of them are on indoor hard courts and his two titles are both on now on indoor hard courts. I mean, is there something about the particular conditions? And actually the question I've written down for you, Calvin, is what makes a good indoor hard court player? Is there something about the conditions that means those guys are kind of favoured a bit more or is it just coincidence? Yeah, if if you're a, if you've got a decent serve and you're a ball striker, a, a, an aggressive, clean ball striker, you'll do well on indoor hard courts because there's no variables, there's no wind, there's no bad bounces, that kind of thing. So that type of player will always want that. Whereas if you're a bit more of a, if you throw a bit more junk in, if you're a bit of a chop and change, you're gonna, you know, you tend to like playing in the wind and the wind levels things up and that kind of thing. So. Mm. You know, obviously the big servers tend to win well on indoor hard because it's it's faster because there's no air, the air's thinner, so the ball goes through indoors. Um, mm. But it's more just that the like I say, the guys who are clean ball, the better tennis players, I will say uh, in inverted commas, the ball strikers <laughs> tend to do well on the indoor hard. It, uh, the the obvious person to point out who's not done them well before which i'm sure we've covered multiple times in the past is, is nadal it's the one surface that's just never quite quite gone well for him I don't, whether that's just because he's always crocked by the end of the season or whatever but his, his match win there is very bad compared to say Djokovic, federer and murray of course as well it's pretty pretty decent on there i was going to say i mean when you think about when the quote-unquote indoor season is it's pre-clay which means that often he's not interested in playing like you know rotterdam he would rather get ready for clay. And then it's, as you say, autumn, and we know from his World Tour Finals attendance record that you know, post-US Open, we don't really see Rafa Nadal very much. So, yeah, I mean, also just some players don't like certain surfaces, and he always says he doesn't want the roof closed like at Roland Garros um, or, or somewhere like that because he would rather it was windy and... Um, kind of a bit more spicy, if you like. So, but I guess that's clay specific. So, I, I guess that's a little bit different. But I don't know. It is a strange one, I admit. Um, nevertheless, Felix or Calvin, you're going to come in on this. I was just going to say as well that you tend to get on an indoor court if if any player, any guy in the top 100, if they hit a bit of form, you'll always get a couple of tour- a couple of indoor tournaments every year won by somebody who just hits some form and and because the it just suits that kind of play. As we saw, I think, well, Paris, I think Sox won in Paris once. Yeah, yeah. And Hatchinov's won in Paris, I think, as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, they're just, you know, those big hitting guys who just hit a bit of a purple patch. They can do damage on them. Yeah. And I think that was actually, to a extent, what you saw with Jack Draper today. I mean, it was like, it was yeah. a really impressive display of, of power hitting. Uh, George, I've got a question for you. I know you've got something to say, but I've got a question for you and you're going to have to answer it. We've now Go got... Two titles for Felix Auger-Elias seems won two of his last three finals. Do you think the monkey is off his back? We're into the next phase of Felix's career. Um, don't know. <laughs> Probably not. Do you think he's um, got to do it? Do you, do you think you need to see it at a slam? Is that is that what's going on here? Yeah, I mean, 
It's just been, I don't know, last season it felt again like there had been a bit of progress at the Slams. There was that semi at Wimbledon. He played a couple of kind of decent matches and doesn't quite feel like it's happened again for him this year. Um, I'm, I think there's going to come a point more naturally on the tour um, where Djokovic and Nadal's decline is such. And that this could happen any year from now, I suppose, really, which is what we've been saying for about six years, probably. But that decline will be as such that guys like Auger Aliassime will suddenly get better at slams by virtue of, you know, draws will open up and be quite mad because they're not as consistent unless Alcaraz does fly straight into perfection, which you two are more confident in than I am at the minute. <laughs> um, so I don't, there's a lot that still isn't right for me with Felix. I know Calvin can give you a much longer, more detailed breakdown of his game and probably second serve issues, etc. But I, I've just I've not seen the progress and I think it'll be a case of the tour getting worse if he's going to succeed rather than him getting significantly better at the moment on current evidence. Well, we are almost certainly going to see him at the World Tour Finals in Turin, which will obviously be indoor once again, so maybe that will be another opportunity for him to show what he can do. He's up to 7th in the race, and remember with Novak Djokovic 10th, it'll be the top 7 that get in, because Djokovic is qualified by virtue of being a Grand Slam winner. That could change still. Taylor Fritz is only uh, 200 or less than 200 points, in fact, behind him in 8th, and Hubert Hercatch, who's here in Antwerp this week, um, is back in ninth and only another 150 behind Fritz. So it could all change, but he is at the moment in the box seat, along with Medvedev and Rublev to round out the lineup. Stefan Sitsipas, Rude Nadal, Alcaraz already qualified, of course. Uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about Andre Rublev and, of course, Igor Shontek. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So, whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So, download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the Love Tennis Podcast with me, James Gray of iNews.co.uk and the iNewspaper. As always, I've got uh, Yorkshire's Calvin Beton, the uh, renowned tennis coach with me, and also from Birmingham, George Belshaw, the tennis writer. Uh, I promise we talk about Andre Rublev, uh, and we will, and we'll do it right now, in fact, right blooming now. <laughs> uh, he won a title last week uh, in Hihon, uh, which... Uh, if you were listening to the first half, which I'm going to assume you were if you listened to the second half. If you've done a rogue thing and you jumped straight into the second half, go back and listen to the first half. It's a belter, I promise. Um, is, there any, is there any podcast where that's a good strategy? Uh, I might try this for fun now. Just try and start banging the middle and see if it... It's a good question, actually. There are some that take, like I think, time to hit, to warm up. I think we took about a year and a half to warm up, to be honest. So, um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I think it, if you're talking about long term, maybe. I don't know. Worth trying. Should we do that, George? The whole of the week, we'll only listen to second half of podcasts, see if we get more out of them. You'd get through a lot more, that's for sure. <laughs> anyway, George is distracted me and talking bollocks. I'm very tired. Um <laughs> Andre Rublev won a title in Spain this week. Uh, who did he beat en route, I hear you ask? Uh, he beat Ilya Ivashka, Tommy Paul, Dominic Team, and Sebastian Corder. Um, didn't drop a set at any point, George. It's not a bad list of players to beat. You know, They've all played well at various times this year. Anyone who's beating Dominic Team at this stage is oh, uh, in mighty fire. I, I don't know why I even asked you. I was like, the only person George is going to talk about here is Dominic Team. Uh, I think... Um... For the time of year, it's. I mean, it's good winning against all of them. You know, Paul's had a half decent year on the whole. Corder's a good player who we all think has a lot about them. Um, obviously, beat Murray this week. Team, you know, he's beaten a top 30 seed in the previous round. So anyone you're beating in the semi final is in some form of form. Um, yeah, I, th- I think it's good for Rublev. I, he's another one who this season you'd struggle to really look at him and say, oh, this is what he's progressed or this is where he's really strode forward. But my kind of theory with Rublev is he's he's topped out. So progress for Andre Rublev is kind of staying there. And I think that's a big challenge that, you know, a lot of players get up into the top 10 near the top five and dip off into the wilderness after, I think, like Jack Zock, for example, probably the most wild example of someone who made a, a mad run qualified for the ATP finals he's barely been back in the top 150 since so you know it's always harder to stay there than it is to get there in my opinion so I don't see Rublev winning many slams or cracking world number one so maintaining that level is probably probably good quite a good effort for him to be honest I think you're probably going to get reasonably rousing agreement out of Calvin on on thinking that Andre Rublev is is topped out because that's often what we've spoken about. But I'm going to put something to you, Calvin, which is that Andre Rublev's only 24. And I I, I kind of read that and it, 
I thought about it and I thought, I don't really think of him as a young guy because I think I know what to expect from him. I know what his game is. I've seen the same kind of game for the last few years. So I don't think of him as someone who's got room for development. Is it possible that you can, instead of developing upwards, develop kind of diagonally and that his game could evolve in a different way? And presumably that's what you think it has to do. It has to change rather than get better at what he currently does. Yeah, I think he's probably already as good as you can get doing what he does. Um, I question as to whether he could get better because his whole game is based on that relentless metronome of hitting the ball hard and being intense and there being not much variation. Mm. Um, that's why he. That's where why he's where he is. Um, I, I don't, if I'm perfectly honest. I mean, look, I'm very often wrong, so I might be here, but <laughs> I don't really see him progressing further than what he currently is. But I think he will stay there for a long time. I mean, this is the thing. I, I know we used to call him the 250 King, kind of. Well, he was, to be fair. But he's 24 years old and he's won 12 tour-level titles. Like, that is twice as many as David Goffin has won in his whole career. And, you know, David Goffin has quite a similar career-highest ranking as Andre Rublev, but has been around for a lot longer. I think, you know... and. The- we do sometimes really underplay how hard it is to be like the top 10 of something of anything in the entire world, like particularly competitive sport. Like it's really bloody difficult. And he's really obviously very, very, very good at tennis. It's just kind of this harsh eye, isn't it? Where you're just saying, we're always looking at how you're going to be the very, very, very best. And how do you make that incremental rise? And you know, I'm sure it was Calvin who probably first introduced the theory on this podcast of, you know, the jump by 100 places from 200 is difficult, from 50 to 100, and then every 10 from there. And once you're in the top 10, every place is really quite difficult unless you just have one week where you fluke us or two weeks where you fluke a slam or a Masters. You know, winning 500s in the top 10 isn't really going to get you that far that quickly. You know, obviously winning a lot of them will do, but it, it is very bloody difficult when you're playing top guys dominated and guys like Djokovic, Nadal, Medvedev, Alcaraz, etc., to get those points. And, you know, as I said with Felix, there are going to be more chances over the next few years for Rublev to add to those tournaments. So he might end up being kind of a top four, top three player if he, if he is consistent at those events. And he has broadly been consistent, although it feels like anecdotally he's felt a little less consistent this season than last season. Um, you, but he's you... still up and around there. Do you think there's anything you're a top 10 in the world at, George? Like, even little mundane bits of your life? I think, I think I might be, like, my specific commute when I take public <laughs> transport. I've moved house now, so I don't think I, I haven't really got it down pat yet. But as in, like, standing in the most optimal place on every platform like knowing exactly the right door to get out of, like getting, this is a real crucial marginal gain, getting your like oyster card out in front of you, like straighten your arm so that you can get the oyster card on the contact patch, start walking through the gate and then exactly, yeah, and you barely have to break stride. If you do it really well, you can do it without breaking stride and you can gain three or four tenths of a second there. So I think I might be, I'd like to see someone else without running because that's key, you can't run on your commute. Would that do my commute quicker? But you got anything, George? Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm struggling. I'm. 
I quite fancy myself on the theme of uh, riding the tube at placing the card after someone else has just used it. I think there's like a split second where you have to place it where it's like gone from red from them going to it is about to go amber. Yeah. And I think I'm pretty pretty good at that. And most people I don't think actually are aware of that and they're waiting for the green. Yeah. But it's kind of like traveling at red amber sort of thing. Like, yeah, yeah. Quite good at that. Yeah, very good. But you've given away your little marginal gain there. Um, so have I, to be fair. But, um, yeah. you know, that's, I, the, that's I, the kind I'll, of... I'll th- I'll think more broadly for next week, though, because that is a really tough question to be dropped on the spot. I would like to know what listeners, like what mundane thing do you think you're top 10 in the world at? Let us know on Twitter, at Love Tennis Pod. Um, Calvin's just top 10 tennis coach, obviously. (laughs) Well, I mean, hard to argue (laughs) against that at the moment. uh, I mean, he's got, I mean, tennis coaches named Calvin Beton, got to be in the top one, surely. Six titles this year as well for the big man, you know. (laughs) Alex Ferguson wouldn't do that. I'll <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, you know it's more than six because there's some futures titles in there as well. Six <laughs> challenges. <laughs> six challenges. I mean, yeah, that's pretty good. Sorry. Um, you sound surprised, George. We know this. The the better. We did know it. We did know it. I, the... I'd love to. I'd love to. We need to get his year by year breakdown. That's had Calvin's <laughs> homework this week. I'm desperate, just like get us to plot a, plot a chart of Calvin's coaching success over the year. I Years. I think you've got a bit too much free time on your hands, if I'm honest. I'm expecting him to do it and you to make the graphs <laughs> and then me be like, yeah, that's pretty good. Well done, uh, Calvin. And I then think, we move on after one minute. You, <laughs> think you wildly <laughs> overestimate the amount of free time I have. Um, anyway, let's talk about some actual tennis, shall we? Because I want to talk about Iga Shrontek at length. Uh, because she has won, speaking of people winning lots of titles, she's now won eight titles this year, which even my Calvin Beton's numbers is a big number. She won the title in San Diego, an absolutely stacked San Diego draw, as I told you last week. Five of the top seven in the WTA race were involved, and it is a very close race, by the way. I think Coco Goff is now potentially... Oh, no, she can get confirmed this week, but I think there's only three places confirmed in the WTA uh, finals, and there's only one tournament left, which is brilliant and exciting uh, for Guadalajara and the 1,000 level. Um, but Iga Shontek triumphed in uh, San Diego. She beat Zheng in the first round, which is, by the way, an absolute belter of a first round. Shontek against um, Zheng Quinn Wen. Zheng Shin Wen, I should say. Uh, she then thrashed Coco Goff. Um, she beat Goff's doubles partner Pagula and then Donna Vekic in three sets in the final um I want to talk about hindrances in a second um and Calvin I'm very interested to, to hear what you've got to say about that but before we do George I want to ask you about the Shrontek Goff rivalry because we I think we all think that that could be like an era defining rivalry and she's just pumped her six love six three um I mean, pe- people and most people I know who watch the match agree to that the problem is still the golf forehand. And to me, until there's a fix there, I don't see how she can beat Shrontek. Uh Yeah, I'd agree. I'd agree. Um, I don't... Yeah, you're right. There's nothing really to add to it. Um, again, it's amazing to me that... I think she's similar in a way to Felix in that I do think what they need... They need to get a good coach on and and be coached. That's the problem with them. I think other players, they need other things that need to be added to their game. But both Felix and Coco, I think, 
yeah, you'd fancy a, a good coach would fancy that they could take them to the next level. But instead, they seem to fancy this sort of amalgamation of bluffers and former big players, coaches who there's questions as to how much they actually added to the big player. Uh, I think you just stole my question there, Calvin. I'm sure James said... Uh, no, no, it's all right. I flagged did I? you both. Sorry, I thought you said Calvin. <laughs> my apologies. I did. I flagged you both. It's my fault. You really. did flag us both. It's poor yeah. presenting. That's the kind of thing that gets me these three-star reviews. Outrageous. Um, I, I agree. I think... I personally think the issues more than just the forehand when I watch them. I still think Sfion... I, I think Goff backhand is good, but I still think Sfiontech just looks better in every kind of aspect um there's not many players who match up really well against Fiontech at the minute obviously because she's a very complete player um i think i tell you i tell you what um i think maybe a year ago Fiontech versus goff i'd maybe have looked at it and gone all right okay yeah and then Fiontech, one of the areas she was deficient in the matchup was defense and i didn't think she was as good a chaser as Goff, that has really improved, and Goff hasn't retaliated by them making the forehand improvement. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> I think that's where you have to look at the two of them is like those incremental improvements, and everything you have to say about Sviontek is we've always said she has every weapon to be the top player in the world, but she's addressed all the areas where it wasn't immediately obvious she was um, going to be this dominant, um, and I. I kind of thought, if I'm being perfectly honest, that I thought Goff would make those improvements a lot quicker than Sviontek. Not mm. necessarily to say she'd be dominating as much, but the the holes in Goff's game, I don't really see that massive improvement. To the point where you're starting to be like, are we are we concerned if she's going to make the improvements? You know, we, we've spoken about Jabor, for example, as someone I don't think can win a Grand Slam because the likelihood is she's going to run into Sviontek and I just don't see her really ever winning that matchup in a big, big, big match. Goff has gone from losing her first match 7-6-6-3 to never winning a set better than 6-3 again, you know, it, against Sviontek. She's not won a single set against her and so much needs to change in Goff's game for her to get anywhere close to level Sviontek is and the fear is if, if Sriontek's improving all the things that she's doing badly and keeps going at that rate and there's always improvements to make and if she keeps striving for that sort of improvement then Goff's already playing catch up and the you know Sriontek's gonna get better she's still only what 22 you know this isn't a player who's close to her peak I don't think this isn't even her final form you might say mm. um one thing that I think we well some people would say Sriontek can improve some people well there is a lot of discourse about the eager Shontek hindrance montage that was created. Um, it happened, I mean, it's happened on several occasions in various different ways, and we can maybe get into that. But the most recent incident was in the final against Donna Vekic, where uh, Shontek ran down, I think it was a net cord actually, um, and returned it back over the net, so a little, um, you know, a little drop shot, uh, but quite a high one. And Vekic was chasing it down, and and Shontek sort of waves her arms in the air a bit, you know, makes herself look big at the net, as you might say about a goalkeeper. Um, and actually, Vekic ended up winning the point anyway. But Calvin, you've seen various of the incidents, and you know the arm waving thing is something that 
other people have done. Igor Shontek didn't invent this. Um, it's a bit of a grey area in the rules, as I understand it, as well. Um, do you think it's deliberate? Do you think it's a tactic? Do you, do you think it's despicable? Or is it just one of these things that happens sometimes? Uh, it's, 100%, it's 100% a tactic, but I don't see as it's, there's anything wrong with it. Um, so, so you can kind of throw your arms in the air and, and make yourself look big at the net if someone's yeah, got she's not. Well, I, it was weird because I'd read about it before I'd seen it, but you know, she's just making herself big. Mm. It's not, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. I don't think she's, I don't think she's necessarily looking to put her. I think it's different if you're trying to put your opponent off as they hit it. Whereas I think she's trying to make herself big. She doesn't like wave her hands when the ball's being hit or that kind of thing. Mm. I think in that regard, it's no different than. You might take up a different serving position. You know, you might move in three feet inside the baseline and, and that kind of thing. That happens all the time. But, um, yeah, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I'd seen something earlier, like someone put a compilation of Schwantex, uh trying to distract, and some of them are very, very tenuous. <laughs> I I find uh, the hindrance thing in tennis quite interesting. Like, and, and just broadly across sport as a whole, actually, and kind of different different attitudes to certain things. My, my personal opinion is you're playing against someone to try and beat them. If you're going to be a dick about it, that's absolutely fine. Like, win at all costs sort of thing. Like, I, I personally just don't see it being an issue. Like, even the rule around, while I'm not saying people should be just shouting before every shot or whatever, on paper, I actually don't think that should necessarily be punishable when you consider, you know, footballers are getting screamed at every week or whatever. The one thing I did want to bring up kind of in another sport that I find weird is like at rugby, when the people were going for the kick, like for conversion, I went to the local level, completely silent. I'm like, what oh, yeah. the hell's going on here? If that's a penalty in football, you're like, yeah, screw you, making the kind of wanker sign behind the goal. You, you suck. You know, it's just funny how you get these kind of ad attitudes adopted at, at different sports. And I think tennis needs to embrace the screw you as you're taking a shot and a bit more beef it'd be fun tennis has like the weirdest etiquettes though like with from players like you know for example like every single player who's ever played tennis knows that apologizing after a net court is the most disingenuous and pointless act <laughs> but then any player any of those players who think that when they get a net court against them if the person doesn't apologize yeah. it's like they've committed blue murder I was just going to say that that's, the, same, that's the weirder bit yeah that's and the, the same bit. thing like with when new balls come like an umpire will announce new balls. Everybody will know it's new balls. And then like if some if a player forgets to hold the ball up to signal new balls as well, the other players after the point will go, didn't even say new balls. And it's <laughs> like, like, well, the umpire said it 10 seconds previous. Also, we've had seven games. Like, yeah. you know. Yeah. I'd, just on this, I mean, if we're talking about like certain gamesmanship, the one that annoys me more that people just don't like take the law into their own hands is stuff like, the server having to wait for the returner that sort of thing i think it should just become total etiquette to serve if they're not there like yeah, just have yeah. players starting to run you know i think tennis becomes a lot more fun if you just in encourage the shithousery personally yeah and the other one is of course the biggest one out of all of this is underarm serve as to why underarm serve is frowned upon no one can actually say why underarm serve is frowned upon it's no different than taking a penalty and doing a penenka or something like, like that. It feels like that's had a makeover a little bit. Like I remember when Kyrgios first did it, it was like you'd get news stories of people being like it's a complete yeah. disgrace. But now people just seem to. It's funny how your perceptions change. So maybe we should just encourage people to start shouting at each other and dancing around the court and stuff. A bit. Of I fun. don't know. Cause I don't know. If I've told this on the pod before, but a mate of mine who's very 
very sensitive. He plays a bit. He plays quite a bit of veterans tennis, but also plays some of the British tours and that kind of thing. Um, about two years ago, a player did an underhand serve against him, and he claimed that it was against the rules and walked off the court because um, <laughs> he said that you're only allowed to do an underhand serve if you're injured. But he didn't say he was injured. So uh, he said he couldn't do it, and then he said he can do it if he wants, and he just went and put his got his bag, put his racket in his bag, and walked off the court. That's potentially the first ever underarm serve that's won someone a match. Yeah, um, that's hilarious. I, I was going to just on Penenkas. I, for reasons that I can't fully remember, I was watching the, a YouTube video the other day. It was all the goals from the South Africa World Cup, which is twenty ten, right? And um, I'd forgotten that. In the penalty shootout between Uruguay Ghana, which is the famous Luis Suarez handball yes. game, in the penalty shootout that decided that match, Edinson Cavani won it with a Penenkud penalty. Like that is just how unbelievably iron are your guts? I can't Tot- believe Totti I... did that as well. Totti did it in the semis of the I think Euros. it was Euro ninety eight. No, no, Euro two thousand. It was more recent than oh, was it? I think I know. I think it was two thousand, yeah. Yeah, and Perlo, Perlo, and he then like was like talking about Joe Hart afterwards, saying I needed to bring him down a peg or two. It was like what a time to deliver that statement, son. Yeah, the the underarm serve is the Penenka of tennis. To be fair, I think it's weird though. You remember them? It's one of those that you remember them when they go in. You you don't remember them like like Berbatov did one in the semi final of an FA Cup. Uh, and it, it just the keeper just stood there and saved mm. it. And like no one remembers that, but you remember the good ones and not the um, not the rubbish ones. And I think think it was like USA '94, the first match. I remember Marco Echeverri tried one, and the keeper just stood there and caught the ball in front of his face. Um, <laughs> and it, it was one of the most hilarious penalties I'd ever seen at that point. Um, okay, we've become distracted. Uh, we were talking about Igor Shontek hindrances. Uh, one word answer. Does Igor Shontek need to take it down a peg, George? Uh, no. Calvin? No. I think I agree. I think we're in agreement. I think I think this might be one of those things where Twitter's gone a bit mental, which, to be fair, I, does happen. I was really hoping Calvin was going to be a strict lover of the game's laws so we could have a bit of a back and forth on this. <laughs> I thought I was going to be quite radical going at the hindrance, but here we are. I, I think it's... Like th- there's been some chat about racket taps, which obviously that that is technically a hindrance, and like Sharapova, I think got done for that um, years and years ago. But like, it does happen when you're just sort of gaining balance sometimes. The one I would say actually in that hindrance video, some of the double bounces are quite poor. Like I think that sort of thing is a little bit worse, and that's necessarily her fault per se, in the sense that it shouldn't be on her to be moral there, but she definitely would feel those double bounces. Like, there's been one the French, double bounce o- the in my... French Open one. Yeah, there's been one double bounce in my entire life where I was adamant I'd got there and the other bloke was adamant I didn't and I genuinely didn't know. Every other time I've known, I've felt it on my racket. Um, and and I'm pretty made, sure... Made a decision whether to cheat or not based on how close the match was. Pretty much. But, you know, the technology's <laughs> there to... Um... No, <laughs> technology's there (laughs) the technology's not at my level but at Sionte's level you know it's not that hard for the young player to get a little screen of the video just be like no but there is that was clearly a double bounce isn't it like a bit like that one at cricket that you can't like three in Uh, 2D you can't tell the foreshortening of the angle yeah Yeah. I mean yes although I mean it happened at the US Open with Murray and Cherundolo 
when Chirondolo ran down a drop shot, like it, he he got it, and like um, Murray then I think missed the the next shot, and he went like he was immediately like, wait, hang on, that was clearly not up, and the umpire was like, I didn't see it that way, play on, and then it came up on the big screen on Louis Armstrong, and everyone saw it, and it was clearly a double bounce. And Cherendolo was like, nah, I can't have this point. Like, you have to give him that point. And Murray Murray was actually, he, like, stopped him at the net after the match finished. And he was like, listen, mate, that was, like, not many people on the tour would have done that. That was pretty impressive. Um, so, you know, it does. I, I think it's insane that umpires can't activate video review. Like, it's completely yeah. ridiculous. I always think players do do it more often. I, I don't really agree with Murray on that. I, I might be totally wrong and just haven't watched a wide enough of one. But I always think when people... People in commentary are like, oh, that's amazing sportsmanship. Most of the time I've seen it where it's been really obvious they have yeah, I agree. actually turned it over. Especially mm. if he's on a big screen with 20,000 people in the stadium. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, you know, just going to have people knowing that you've watched it and just like ignoring it. Yeah. yeah. So, so that's the one thing I would say that if I were her and looking to not trash my own image, that that's, that's the one thing I would personally cut out. If you were looking to elevate yourself into the... Um... Calvin, go on. I'll just say like another weird, and I don't even know this if this is right or wrong, another weird sort of unwritten rule in tennis is that when you're arguing with an umpire about a line call, you 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 would never ask the opponent. Like even if they know you can never go. You, it's, it's like, and no one's ever said it. It's just one thing that you never do. Uh, you never go to your opponent. How did you see it? <laughs> like you can argue full on. It's like two people. There's three people on the court and two of them are arguing like mental about it. And then you could, but you just can never go. How did you see it? Um, I remember Federer and Nadal both getting in a bit of trouble for that, didn't they? Kind of interacting with their opponents at times, and both both kind yeah, of because uh, it's seen as conversations just... afterwards. Because it's even though it seems like kind of totally reasonable in some kind of normal universe, it's yeah, uh... yeah. There is this weird thing umpires often say it, where like a player's complaining and like at a sit down. And the umpire's like, no, look, I'll deal with him. You talk to me and I'll talk to him. And <laughs> yeah. it's like, mate, he's like 15 feet away. I can tell him he's a dickhead from here. Um, yeah, yeah. But, and yeah. crossing the court, I, for that's another weird one, isn't it? You can't yeah, cross the net. That was what Shapovalov... Well, yeah, both of them. So Shapovalov crossed the net in Rome to like point at a mark. And it was um, uh, Richard Haig, the British umpire. And he was like, oh, no... And then it's like, Dennis, look, I, just so you know, I'm going to have to code you because you did it. And, like, it's kind of, you know, strict liability. Um, and, yeah, Jock, uh, Kyrgios doing it in that, um, was it against Medvedev, I think? That bizarre point. Anyway, uh, let's move on, shall we, since we've solved the Iga Shontek debate. Um, I wanted to briefly mention some quite disturbing stuff that I saw on Twitter um, through an account called Ukrainian Tennis, which is worth following because it's just quite handy, um, pointing out some stuff that Anastasia Gasanova had been posting on Instagram. Now, look, you can go and find this stuff if you want to. I, I, it's long, there's a lot of it. But it was kind of pertinent to something that we had a chat about privately as a, as a podcast. Um, Anastasia Gasanova is Russian. She's 23 years old. She's um, a sort of... 130 odd in the world I think or certainly has been that high and she basically put a series of posts on Instagram kind of doubling down on the Russian government's stance on the war in Ukraine um, she was calling it a special military operation, she was blaming Kiev for 
kind of um, inciting uh, the invasion. Uh, it, it was pretty much just full-on Putin propaganda from start to finish. And it was pretty disturbing, really, because I think, as we've often said um, in the podcast, most players, even if not vocally and publicly, almost all the players are, we think are against the war. And we don't. most of us don't think it's right that they got banned from Wimbledon because of Russia's actions. And this is the first time, I think, George, we've really seen, apart from, you know, some of the Kostyuk stuff and, you know, Marta Kostyuk versus um, Victoria Azarenka, like, is also steeped in a few personal things and to do with Azarenka's reputation on tour, etc., etc. Um, but it's the first time we've really seen a player kind of... <laughs> fully come out in support of the war for want of a grim less grim phrase yeah um it's quite a bold move isn't it really i mean not to make light of it i mean it's absolutely terrible but i was kind of thinking about this earlier a little bit and again I pro- i'm not trying to make light of any of this before anyone accuses me of that but i was actually just thinking about some of the stuff she was saying and how it like it's the idea of like my friend has told me this and sometimes the value we put in what other people you kind of trust tell you from that position yeah. and the weird analogy i was kind of thinking of in my head was like do you know sometimes you just like you don't realize there's something you've believed was wrong for a long time just because someone told you it and it can take like a year or two for you to actually realize oh yeah that that was totally totally inaccurate wrong and for me it was like one of my friends at school who was very smart just being like yeah, Sutton Park uh, is the largest urban park in Europe. Check that a few years later, having just taken that as red. Totally false. Totally, totally false. Uh, you know, and uh, and so it's just this kind of idea. There's so much in a statement just around, like, I've got friends who live there who know what's going on. And then you're thinking that, well, how do they know? What are their kind of opinions? And it, it, it just really made me actually think about that sometimes in kind of the world we live in, at, like, taking things at face value or taking things from people you trust and how it can lead down this spiral into basically a very a dark warped place that's come from gross misinformation and um what what there's access to so it I, that's really what it kind of provoked for me beyond a kind of lack of yeah this is absolutely terrible and just a horrible state of affairs in where you've got people who genuinely believe that i want to publicly support a you know a terrible horrible invasion i think i think there's actually a name for that it's, uh, isn't it mandela effect that that if yeah, some, like, people were believing things because they'd been told something and apparently back in the 80s some a few people had said that nelson mandela was dead and then people just believed he was dead it's yeah. something i read about it about three or four months ago yeah it, i also read something quite it's called false memory but yeah it also gets gets known as the mandela effect because it was either reported or in the 1980s it was said that Nelson Mandela died in prison. A lot. That's it exactly. Sorry, I've just found the article that I had read. A lot of people distinctly remember Nelson Mandela's death when he was in prison in the 1980s, but it didn't happen. And the, there are various other examples of people swearing blind of certain things being the case. For example the tv show with sarah jessica parker in it the four women sex and the city sex and the city what sex. what's what's the second word you're both saying it's there? and isn't it and yeah but look, people will swear blind that it's sex in the city um 
And it's just one of those things, yeah, that, that you're absolutely right. Uh, sketches. Spelling of sketches is another good one. The, the, the other one I've got, Rob, here is no one definitely told me this, but I thought potato wedges were called potato wedgies for about 17 years of my life. I just had no <laughs> idea. <laughs> and, and obviously the, the most famous example of the Mandela effect is that lots of people are absolutely convinced that Sutton Park is the biggest urban park in Europe. <laughs> um, you know, I actually did a load of research afterwards because I was like, there's no way this guy's like told me this. A very stand-up, lovely bloke. And Sutton Park did used to be joined to another park called Cannon Hill Park. And I was like, oh, maybe he just meant uh, it used to be the biggest urban park in Europe, uh, like, you know, 100, 150 years ago. No. No, it just still be... wasn't even number one in England. Yeah, so. you've, just, you've just been mugged off in a massive yeah, way. Yeah, absolutely mugged off. I think it's Richmond Park in, in England, for what it's worth. Is that the biggest urban park in Europe? Oh, I don't know about in Europe, in England, certainly. You're, you're going to create another Mandela effect. <laughs> yeah, I've just like misread the list or misremembered what it was, so I'll be telling people the wrong fact for the next five years without joking. Uh, well, I'm glad that we've managed to move on from that Gasanova stuff in such a merry way because it, it is grim and I wanted to kind of signpost it because it, it's just proof that not all tennis players think the same way and that it is important to be vigilant. And actually, George, you're saying it's important to fact check yourself and it's important, like, I've seen a lot of people in the last two years who've been radicalised and I don't, I don't mean that lightly. I mean people who were once right-minded thinking individuals who now believe that the world is trying to kill them or that the world is against them or trying to reset them or you know matt letissier today saying that tommy robinson doing great things in his field um matt letissier is a great example of someone who has completely and utterly lost it um and he's blocked me on twitter so it's really hard for me to see all his tweets but it's, it's not a big deal i'm all right with it um <laughs> Anyway, let's move on to some lighter things, albeit Andreas Seppi will not think it's light, uh, because he is retiring, uh, as lots of people will know, and there have been a couple of tournaments in Italy over the last couple of weeks, including the one in Florence that Felix Auger-Aliassime won, and there was no wild card for Andreas Seppi, the Italian Tennis Federation, um, telling him that they'd rather give it to a couple of young players. Um Calvin, as someone who both spends lots of his professional life negotiating wildcards and who also will remember the beginning of Andrea Seppi's tennis career, um, is it a bit unfair that he hasn't been given the chance to, you know, have a proper farewell? I think it's always a difficult one that I can absolutely see both sides of the argument and I really hope that I never have to make that decision on it myself. Um yeah, who did the wild cards go to? Do we know? That I mean, that's a great question. George might have an answer. I do know. I can't remember all the names, but the one that was pretty bad, actually, um, in my opinion, because I, I think he does deserve a wild card as someone kind of had a, a good, good career, once end on home, so that would be nice. One of them was Matteo Berrettini, who missed the sign-up date. You'd be so <laughs> angry with him. Yeah, I've, right. there's, there's a, that's the one thing I hate about wild cards. And there might... I can say because I don't work for them. The LTA are terrible at this kind of thing. That they 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 say that they won't give wild cards if it's just because you forgot to enter, and at least twice a year they still do it if it's for players who they want to be in the tournament. Hmm. That's that's not great. Um, uh, the other ones were I've got the draw in front of me in Florence, Francesco Passaro, 
Giulio Zeppieri and Francesco Maestrelli. I don't yeah, know I'd, very I'd, much about them. Yeah. I mean, it's... The, the tournament, I mean, to be fair to them on kind of the Berrettini point particularly, you know, top-ranked Italian at a home Tickets, tournament. Man. Like, if it's for this that is what it's going to come down it, to. Like... Um, but I'm sure, you know, that they'll know hand on heart the other guys, um, how likely they are to make it or not. But you can't really blame a federation, I suppose, in trying to give their own... Um, own the opportunity but it is a shame I mean they've obviously got the ATP finals in Turin I mean it'd be quite nice if they could put something on like a little exhibition with Seppi playing one of them or something you know or maybe the alternate one night just having a couple of sets That that's the sort of thing that could be quite a nice celebration of his career um, that's firmly within the kind of Italian Tennis Federation's hands but um, especially given how rubbish the tickets are for ATP World Tour Finals where you get yeah. one singles match and one doubles match per session um, exactly there's definitely something to be added to those uh, to those ticketing sessions um, we we said we were going to talk about um, Anna Blinkova uh, because she won a title this week uh, she won the Winners Open as it's now called which is a bizarre name for the tournament in Cluj um, she came through qualifiers though. She beat Bjorklund, Zakharova, um, Wang. I don't know if that's Jinyu or Ji Wang. I think that's Jinyu Wang. Uh, Kalanina, Potapova, Paulini. Uh, you know how sometimes people win titles without dropping a set. She won titles playing every possible set there was, pretty much. Um, but good for her. Congratulations. Um, I think she is. Oh, where's she going to go up to in the world rankings? I really should have the world rankings open in front of me at all times, and I've usually like scattered my way off the page to. Uh... She's up to seventy-seven in the world, I reckon. There you go. Um, we haven't got a lot of time left uh, because we can't go on for two hours, much as at least one listener on Twitter would like us to. Uh, so I should say there's a massive tournament in WTA in Mexico this week, WTA Guadalajara, which is always, or at least pretty much in the last two years since it's been inaugurated, been a really well-attended event. They love tennis in Mexico, it turns out. Any one of 17 players could qualify for the WTA finals this week, uh, of which there are five places left. If you want to know how and who, if you're not really following him, you need to be following him. His name's Juan Ignacio underscore AC. Uh, he's a Chilean tennis journalist who does loads of stats on Twitter. He's absolutely brilliant. And he's done a really, really useful table uh, on Twitter that you can have a look at, which pretty much explains uh, that Coco Goff only has to get to the third round, uh, Dario Casacchino only has to get to the semi-finals to guarantee a place, whereas like Daniel Collins has to win it, or Ludmila Samsonova has to win it, and a few results have to go her way as well. Um, George, I've rattled to the end of this podcast. Do you have any other any other business? I think just last one, um, we spoke about her in a bit more of a negative context earlier, but nice to see Coco Goff picking up another doubles title this week with Jessica Pagula. You know, that's a nice kind of top five WTA pair that's that played really well together. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm glad glad to see that kind of happening in the game at the minute. Yeah, Coco Goff um, could well, I think is almost guaranteed now, uh, to play WTA finals in singles and doubles as well. Um, so if she won those two titles... That would be historic. That's all we've got time for this week. I'm sorry that we've run out 
Uh, I've been James Gray, he's Calvin Bethon, the other lad is George Belshaw. Leave us a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts. Tell your friends to listen, and most importantly, please come back next week. Podcast Network. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.